Have you guys noticed that you can't go anywhere without seeing designer this or designer that, even designer furniture? On my social feeds and celebrity homes, it's everywhere. Have you seen how expensive these are? Well, if you want the sofa or recliner or bed that broke the internet, you don't have to go broke to get it. Because Designer Looks Furniture has all the same styles and trends, but without the designer prices. Oh, and they're well-made, too. It's the whole package. Check them out. Designer Looks at Value City Furniture or designerlooks.com. Hear that? That's the sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that... That's the sound of a financial system that's digitally secured from bad actors. Right now, there's an invisible war being fought on a digital battlefield that impacts what we do every day. That's why at Paraton, we do the can't be done to help protect the vital systems we rely on. Because if we don't, the alternative is unimaginable. Paraton. Do you know how many months in the year have 28 days? Which word in the dictionary is always spelled incorrectly? Or how much dirt is in a hole that measures four feet by five feet? Obviously, it's every month. The word incorrectly. And there is no dirt because it's a hole. Maybe it's time to start snacking on more walnuts. Research continues to assess the connection between eating walnuts and cognitive performance. So the next time you're at your local Kroger, try to remember to grab a bag of California walnuts. Hi, this is Jack Bogut, and you are online with Bill Alexander. Well, it is a Wednesday night, as I mentioned a few moments ago. Yours truly, Bill Alexander, with you. Hope everything's going fine for you on this Wednesday night, the 17th of March, 2010. On the phone line right now, we have Ed Solomon, the, new, the author of the new book, Pittsburgh's Golden Age of Radio. Ed, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great, Bill. Glad to be online. I'm glad to have you on the program this evening, and uh, a, a mutual friend of ours actually uh, told me about this book a couple weeks back by the name of Eric O'Brien from PBRTV.com, and he said, Bill, you got to get this guy on the show. He said, the book is great, and uh, you need to talk to him about the early days of radio in Pittsburgh, and I got the copy of my book, and Eric and I talked about it two weeks ago on the program. And actually, it's not really about the early days. It's almost like the second half of radio in the Pittsburgh area. Well, when, when I decided to write a book called The Golden Age of Radio, one of the privileges that comes with that is defining what the scope of the golden age is going to be. And I decided to start at the beginning with the KDKA, the beginning of commercial radio in Pittsburgh, and uh, go up uh, until the end of the 70s when FM took over from AM. And that's what the book covers. And um, what, when I was talking to a few people in here, as you, as you look at the early days from, uh, from KDKA, um, WCA, uh, WCAE, um, the Double Double, and every other station that was on in between there, not only that, but when we signed on the air, and uh, WDSY, who was Weep FM at the time, came on. Um, the 1970s is when radio in Pittsburgh actually started to, what do I want to say, experiment, because we're getting away from the network programming of the 40s and mid-50s, and radio actually became local at the time. Well, that was a reaction, of course, to uh, the networks being uh, damaged by television. The greatest network performers were stolen away by the new medium of television, and radio had to reinvent itself. And in the process of reinventing itself, 
it became live and local. And, and going through the book, you have some great photographs um, of the early days of radio and radio all the way up until the end of the 70s. And where did the most of the photographs come from? Most of the photographs came from people who were working at radio stations uh, during the uh, period covered by the book. Uh, as you probably realize, um, radio stations uh, change hands and in, the, in recent years have changed hands rather frequently. And a lot of times, uh, most times actually, uh, the files are, are lost. Radio, most radio stations don't have um, a file of photographs from 20, 30, 40 uh, years ago. So uh, uh, I was uh, um, dependent upon a lot of the radio personalities themselves uh, to provide these, these photos. And thank goodness a lot of people saved them, or in uh, Jack Bogut's case, his wife Joni saved a lot of, a, a lot of <laughs> things. And uh, we were very fortunate to, 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 to have those made available to us for this uh, book. There were also some of the uh, recording artists from Pittsburgh, um, Bobby Vinton, who provided a picture of uh, him with Clark Race at KDKA. Uh, he credits Clark with breaking his career when Clark uh, started to play his first hit, Roses Are Red. Um, Jackie Taylor from the Skyliners provided a photo of uh, Al Noble, a KQV disc jockey who attended their first recording session, uh, the recording session for Since I Don't Have You. And Jimmy Ross of the Jaggers uh, provided us a, a photo of uh, the group uh, at KQV, the station he credits with breaking their number one hit, The Rapper. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I go through the book, and, and there's some photographs of people that I've talked to in the past and I've never really met. I had a gentleman... Um, years ago, when I used to work at the um, old AM 1130 WASP, which is in Brownsville, that covered Brownsville and Pittsburgh, and a gentleman by the name of Slim Bryant used to call my program, and the bad news was I didn't know who Slim was until oh. another friend of mine by the name of Bob King had to explain to me who Slim Bryant was, and I'm going, I'm only in my, uh, at the time I was in my 30s, and going, I don't remember this. But uh, Slim and I struck up a nice uh, friendship over the telephone lines, and uh, he would call me on a regular basis just to talk about the way radio was when he was on the air in the early days of KDK. And that was, of course, uh, live radio. Uh, Slim would come in with his band and perform live when he first started at KDK. And then going through the book, uh, just some of the pictures of the early days of Reed Cordick, um, Bob Prince, and then uh, some of the guys that I, I grew up listening to in the uh, late 60s and 70s, which one of the reasons why I wanted to get into radio is because they made it sound like so much fun. Ed well, Chauncey, mm -hmm. Art well, Allen, well, Jack Bogut, and just some of those names. Well, me too, Bill, and that's why I wound up re uh, right, having to uh, – uh, finding the opportunity to write this book. Um, I grew up in the Pittsburgh area, listened to uh, the, a lot of these folks on the radio, and uh, they likewise inspired me to get into radio. And now that uh, um, I've had a nice career in radio and I'm doing some other things, had the opportunity and the time to uh, uh, 
put together something that would memorialize uh, some of those people that were not only important to those of us who grew up listening to radio in Pittsburgh, but were influential to radio stations around the country. And um, just giving the audience a little bit of background of of you, you actually uh, uh, worked on the uh, KDKA's 50th anniversary in 1970. Now, was that your first venture into radio, or were you doing other things at the time? Right. Um, that was a, uh, my first radio job was at KDKA in 1970 um, when I uh, was hired to help them publicize their 50th anniversary. And uh, from then I figured out what radio was and what, what jobs there were and quickly tried to get myself into programming. And uh, that's why I spent most of uh, my time in uh, radio doing, programming radio stations and uh, doing programming at radio networks. Mm-hmm. And uh, from, from the bio that I have, you actually worked with Dick Clark in uh, a uh, radio network and, and served as the president of programming for Westwood One. Correct. Um, in 1981, Dick Clark and I and some folks from the Mutual uh, Broadcasting System formed a radio network, the United Stations, that uh, wound up buying the RKO radio network, merging with the Transtar radio network to form Unistar, and ultimately that company was absorbed into Westwood One. So I had a 20-some year run as head of programming for a radio network, starting with that partnership with Dick Clark and ending uh, as president of programming for the Westwood One radio network, which at that time was the largest radio network. And uh, so you've pretty much seen radio, and not to say the heyday, but when it was really a local programming in the 70s, up until the change that's happened within the last five or ten years to see what's happened to it, going back from a local identity now to more of a network identity. Well, you know, it's not surprising. Uh, Radio's reinvented itself more than once and will probably continue to do so. Where do you see it going in the next couple of years? Do you see it staying the way it is, or do you see it going back into local ownership? Uh, I I really have no idea. You know, much of what's happening in radio today (laughs) is being driven by the technology. And, uh, you you know, my bet would be that we're all going to be walking around with some cell phone-like instrument that will be our radio, our television, our computer, and our telephone. And that's what I think is really interesting because when I started – in the mid eighties doing this, I never thought that we would be doing, well, I guess if you want to call it internet radio, I heck, no one knew what the internet radio was when I started in 1984, let alone uh, broadcasting on it to a, a large audience, not only a local or regional audience, but a worldwide audience now. And uh, we've come a long way in such a short period of time. It'll be interesting to see where we go in the next few years. Yes, but isn't it interesting that the the content is still king, as they say, and uh, yes. what what you do um, providing programming is uh, is not much different, no matter how it's being delivered or what the delivery system is, how it's being received. Um, you know, you're doing what you're doing, uh, and. Uh, whether someone's receiving it on a computer or over the air or 
or by some other means um, is sort of inconsequential to your content in a lot of cases. And it's interesting because this content and the way delivery is done, at least the way I do it, is the same way I did it when I worked AM radio um, a handful of years ago for, uh, what, WASP in Brownsville and then WMBS in Uniontown and a couple other stations that I traveled to in my, uh, in my journey to get where I'm at now. But um, a friend of the program is by the name of Clark Ingram, who uh, we found out there was a photo in the book and we noticed his hair hasn't really changed that much since the uh, late 70s. We were talking about um, the way radio was, especially in the 1960s and 1970s, and that on AM radio, that the jock was more personality-driven, unlike the new advent of FM radio at the time, which was more music-driven. And that's, that's true. Of course, there's exceptions to all of that. A lot of personality radio today is, uh, is talk radio. Uh, that that's mm-hmm. really seems to be where the uh, um, air personality uh, gets to be distinct and different. Do you still see a place other than, because this is the other controversy that we've talked about um, with the advent of everything changing, that there still will be a place for AM radio. I mean, right now, everything that is, is not on FM is on, on AM. And do you see AM still being a vehicle to broadcast in a handful of years? Or do you think that AM is going to basically, I don't want to say disappear, but not being used for, for content or programming um, of, of radio programming that we know today, and all that being shifted to the FM frequency? It's, it's really hard for me to handicap the technology like that, but I'll tell you, a couple weeks ago, I was in Washington, D.C. The National Association of Broadcasters once a year brings the state broadcast associations into Washington. They uh, are uh, given some presentations by um, senators, congressmen, and others, and then these state organizations go to see their local senators and congressmen to talk about the issues that are important to radio, and I was a guest of the Tennessee Association of, of Broadcasters, and a congressman who is the head of the communications subcommittee spoke to the entire group, and what he said um, was sort of frightening to me. Uh, He believed that within five years, more people would be listening to radio stations over the internet than over broadcast. In in fact, let me clarify that more people would be listening to broadcast radio stations over their internet stream than over their broadcast. Boy, I, I find that really hard to believe but there is someone who's extremely involved in the uh, radio process who, uh, who has that opinion. And I, I know right now the city of Pittsburgh is trying to uh, market with Google um, for a high-speed wireless network to basically cover the majority of the city of Pittsburgh. So if no matter what you're carrying or, or using as, a, uh, as a, um, a PDA device or a cell phone or whatever it may be, you'll be able to listen to that content using Wi-Fi signal. 
And I also understand that Ford Motor Company, with their new system set up through with Microsoft, the Sync system, that that's going to be able to do the same thing, that you'll be able to listen to Internet radio stations while you drive in your car as long as you have the ability to a 3G network or a Wi-Fi network. And to me, again, like you say, I find that hard to believe, but what we've seen over the last five years I never thought would happen either. Well, Bill, you may well be in the right place at the right time with your show. <laughs> I'm keeping my I'm keeping my fingers crossed. Let's just say that. So I'm looking I'm looking through the book, and there's some photographs in here and some time periods in here that are just great. Especially when the Beatles invaded the city of Pittsburgh, and KQV, and um, they were basically trying to capitalize on that. And there's a photograph of these five guys, which was uh, Steve Risen, Dave Scott, Chuck Brinkman, Hal Murray, and Des Allen as their version of the KQ, uh, KQV uh, Fab Five, I guess it would be. <laughs> In that time period, were they doing a lot? I mean, the marketing just seemed like they were just having fun and they were just trying to capitalize on any quirky idea that they possibly could or compare them with other things that were going on in the pulp culture at the time. Absolutely, stations related to the pulp culture. And the book Pittsburgh's Golden Age of Radio, I think, works in three different ways. First of all, it's a picture book. There's nearly 200 pictures. And because there are more than one radio personality in most pictures, it really documents uh, several hundred um, radio personalities. And, w and with each picture, there's a caption that sort of tells an inside story about, about radio that uh, your listeners might not be familiar with uh, if, they, if they didn't work in radio or if they weren't around during that time. And at the beginning of the book, there's, uh, I've, I've written sort of a long introductory essay that, that attempts to put Pittsburgh's radio um, history um, in context with the overall radio history so that the listener can have an appreciation of where Pittsburgh's uh, radio fits in with what was happen happening nationally. And uh, I, I think those who care to read that get a much better appreciation of everything else in the book. Now, you're talking about where, the, where Pittsburgh fit nationally into the radio um, industry. At this time, Pittsburgh was what, in the top 10 uh, markets for right. broadcast radio, correct? Pittsburgh was a top 10 market when I worked at KDKA in, in 1970, and um, because of that, uh, it, it attracted a lot of good talent, and uh, a lot of formats, uh, it, Pittsburgh was very early to, uh, to, to have uh, in, in the market, um, although it didn't have the first top 40 station. WEEP was certainly one of the first, and later on, uh, WAMO FM and WDVE would be among the first progressive rock radio stations. And uh, radio professionals from all over the country would come into Pittsburgh and listen to the disc jockeys, and listen to the radio stations, and uh, go back and emulate them. Pittsburgh had a great influence in, 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 in radio. And, of course, because of uh, the KDKA and KQV being early uh, radio stations, uh, there were just a ton of firsts 
that happened in the Pittsburgh market. Now, looking at looking at the book again and, and looking at some of the photographs, and I understand that last week at uh, the book signing that you did, I guess, last uh, Thursday night, you had a few of these personalities with you um, at your first yeah. book signing when you were in Pittsburgh. I did four book signings, and I had personalities at all of them. And some of the uh, ones that participated included um, Jack Bogut, who at the time he was at KDKA was uh, one of the top five morning radio personalities in the country, according to USA Today. Um, Perry Marshall, who did so much in Pittsburgh radio, I mean, well-known for talk programming on WJAS and and KDKA, but he also played music on KQV and, in fact, um, could well be considered Pittsburgh's first top 40 disc jockey because he was the original air staff of WEEP. Um, we had, uh, oh, the, the Mark Roberts, who's best known for his work uh, on Wixie and TAE. Mike McGann, likewise, Wixie, TAE, mm-hmm. 96 Kicks, uh, WJAS later. Frank Gottlieb, who's currently the news director of KQV, but way back when was Frank the Freak at uh, <laughs> the Whammo <laughs> FM during their progressive uh, progressive era. Uh, Dave James, newsman, uh, KDKA for a long time. Then Clark Ingram actually attended one of the book signings, stuck his head out and waved to me, and then when I went to call on him to involve him, he was gone. But uh, even, even your buddy Clark was there. <laughs> well, um, unfortunately, I wasn't able to, to make it last weekend because uh, my son, who is uh, is uh, nine years old, did his first musical with our local high school, and I was unable to make it because the night, whenever you were doing the book signings, is when I, we had to be at uh, at his his musical or getting ready for the music, so I was unable unable to be there. And just hearing some of the names, because Eric O'Brien talked to me last week and said who was there, um, it would have been nice to uh, to see them because most of them, if I've not um, met personally before, I've talked to in the past. And Jack Bogut, who is um, a fr- also a friend of the program, which uh, I've had the opportunity to meet Jack oh, probably 10, 15 years ago. And when I saw him, I blamed Jack for me getting into this line of work. And Jack said, why? I said, because you left KDKA to go to TAE for a million-dollar contract. I figured if you could do it, anybody could do it. And I said, why not me? What's that? I said, as you quickly and, learned, and, and, Jack was the exception. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what he said, too. Well, I learned quickly after doing it for uh, – 15, 15, 16 years, I decided let's do let's do radio part-time or let's do the talk show part-time and let's go into education. So now I teach kids how to do this. So it uh, it's more stable work. And I haven't had to move in quite a few years, which is nice. But, uh, but Jack has more stories. And I think, um, as, the, as the saying goes, Carter has little liver pills because some of the things of him being in Montana and then coming to Pittsburgh, because Pittsburgh wasn't really his first choice. He was actually looking at another part of the country. And because at that time, when everybody thought of Pittsburgh, they thought this dirty steel mill town. And he said when he came back here the first time, basically, as he was just amazed coming through the Fort Pitt tunnels and saw the Golden Triangle, said, 
this is where I want to be. And little did he know he was going to have a career here for as many years as he did, and not only a career, but a very successful career. Well, we had a great time at the signings with Jack and, and the other radio folks that were in the book uh, telling the stories behind the pictures. Mm-hmm. Now, of all the pictures and all the people that you've worked with, is there any story that sticks out more than another? Well, not particularly a story, but when I started to compile the book um, and started to contact people uh, for pictures, uh, memorabilia, uh, I got a greater appreciation for what I was doing because most people who are in radio did not save pictures, did not take pictures. Um, Various reasons, you know, they'd move around so much that they'd get lost or discarded or, you know, various things would happen. Or when you left a radio station, uh, some some people just didn't think that, you know, ever really want to remember being there. So uh, in, in a lot of cases, uh, the only pictures that some of the people in this book will have from their radio career are the pictures in the books supplied by their colleagues. Uh-huh. Which, which, which is interesting. And, and I, as I told Eric this a couple weeks back, um, just so you know, after I saw the book and everything, I started compiling my photos for your second book, just to let you know. Oh, good, good, good. So, so I, and I actually have two of them hanging on my wall right now, but, but I have them, so if you need them, I'll be more than happy to send my, my photos to you. Um, <laughs> if, if there is a volume two, I, if there's a volume two, I'll contact you. That's for sure, Bill. <laughs> well, because I've, I've worked with some guys that have uh, ended up, where, when I started, this is where they were finishing up at. And um, some great people that I've had the opportunity to work with. Um, one used to work with uh, Porky Chedwick on a regular basis in Fayette in Washington, Green County, by the name of uh, Leon Sykes, which yes. uh, Leon was an oldies disc jockey and basically introduced me to oldies music when I started, uh, when I started my young career. Very influential in, uh, in, in, in that area. Uh, he had a lot of fans um, in, in that area. Um, a, a big fan of his was a guy, Steve Popovich, who became a, uh, uh, a president of a record company, Cleveland International Records, that, uh, um, that uh, issued or produced and uh, issued the Meatloaf album. If you remember, Bad Out mm-hmm. of Hell by Meatloaf. That was yeah. Steve Popovich's record company who released that through through Epic Records. And Steve's a friend, and and he always credits Leon Sykes with the reason as the reason why he got into the uh, music business to begin with. Just hearing hearing Leon in the radio. Yeah, Leon was a good guy, and then. Um... Uh, let's see, uh, Larry Travis Seri, who uh, who's, who uh, did local dances in that in the area, worked with him for a few years. Whose brother is was is or if not was part of the Caesar Engler um, yeah, Ed Travis in Pittsburgh Seri. when they used to and Travis Seri and uh, a handful of other people. But like I said, a lot of people in my area hear these guys but never realize that they had careers outside of the area where they ended up at. And that's what's, that's what's really interesting about this book. 
gentlemen, um, I have an interview somewhere. I spent two hours on the phone with this man, and one of the best interviews I had, unfortunately, I can't air it anywhere. And that's with Joe Gehrig. Oh. And, and Joe and Joe and I sat on the phone for two hours one night and talked about his early days and at KDK and then and where he's moved to and everything else. And again, it was just just amazing, this wealth of information, this wealth of history that if like you did, you you wrote some of this down, but there's just so much there that most people don't think about. And it's just uh, one of the things I'm afraid of is that if we don't get it out there, it's going to be lost. Well, you know, and, 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 and point well taken, because during the time that I was putting this book together, um, the, the, the book company, once they green-lighted the project, only gave me a few months to get everything done. Luckily, I had a lot of things in my own collection. But even during the few months that I was working on, on this book, um, a couple of the people who were contributors to it passed away. Ira Apple was one of them. Ira was yeah. uh, one of the first talk show hosts in the country. Uh, he was at WJAS in, in Pittsburgh, WAMP in Pittsburgh, same station, different call letters at different, different times. And, and Ira was a very early uh, talk show person, later went on to be a, uh, a programmer at uh, – at, at KDKA and uh, did news at, uh, at at KQV and Jay Michael, who was one of the earliest disc yeah. jockeys to play rock and roll in the Pittsburgh area at the time when stations were block programmed and each disc jockey um, had a different music mix from other air personalities on that on that station and both of those folks contributed pictures and. Uh, uh, but pa- but passed away during the time that we were putting the book together. I was uh, again very fortunate to be able to uh, to have them participate in this book. Mm-hmm. And then looking at some people that that unfortunately passed away before their time, like uh, Mike Levine, who uh, I had the opportunity to work with when I worked at WASP in Brownsville. He was finishing his career, and. Um, I was starting mine about the same time and had the opportunity to work with Mike and a very interesting character with his, uh, with his recording machine as uh, he used to go out and do news now, but he ended up doing talk on um, AM 1130. And that's where Joe Gehring did talk for um, a handful of years before he started. He basically created his own uh, production form now working with doctors and chiropractors and uh, all the stuff that he's uh, selling right now. But but looking through these, um, a lot of a lot of your your pictures that that you have are I don't want to say uh, promo shots, which a good many of them are. But there's actually photographs of people that were taking on location at mm-hmm. at, 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 the, at parties or whatever it may be at concerts and stuff like that. Now were these staff photos that were done or were they done from other people's collections that say, hey, knew that you were putting the book together and said, hey, Ed, I have these photographs. Could you use these? Or was it just a a random selection of of everything that you had available to you? Well, I I, I tried to make it a mix of of pictures um, of of all types or illustrations of all types. I mean, some of of the pictures in the book are actually – um, top 40 sheets from some of the radio stations that pictured the air personalities and uh, a number of uh, 
of the illustrations are are that. A number are the promo uh, promo shots, but a, as you as you pointed out, a great number are private pictures that were just taken by individuals. And uh, you know they were so gracious enough when they heard I was doing this book to uh, let the, let them be published. So I'm you know I I was uh, uh, very blessed with having a great variety of material to to choose from, and I tried to to vary the content um, uh, just to make it as interesting as possible so that they weren't all one type of picture or just concentrated on uh, a few disc jockeys. There's uh, folks in in there that uh, um, probably would otherwise be forgotten if they weren't memorialized in this book. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking at this, and as as I go through, and I guess guess the main... uh, the main focus of music, if it wasn't done in the in the 40s and 50s, which was live, which they had bands come into the studios and play. Which, speaking of that, next week I have a uh, I have the daughter of the uh, big band orchestra, Wally Gingers, joining me next Wednesday, who will be uh, on the program. Who did a lot of the radio performances in the area at that time, and um, if it wasn't live, then they were going to records at the time 45 but was pop music the predominant music when they started shifting from network programming or was there a little bit of country in there too because from what i see there really wasn't a country station until uh wheat flipped in the uh, early 70s well the first country station and it's actually pictured in the book was when WHOD became Whammo in 1956, and they became all country except for the Porky Chedwick show. And a picture of the staff is uh, in the book, and the staff included um, Slim Bryant and his brother Loppy, and uh, um, uh, as, as well as a, a number, a number of other personalities that had primarily been. Um, uh, live entertainers, uh, and they became disc jockeys on uh, on, on WAMO. Uh, and within a couple years, that uh, station um, changed format to um, the format it's best known for, the rhythm and blues format, um, when Wiley uh, changed to uh, become Weep, the top 40 station. So what were, mm-hmm. you know, stations were always change, changing formats, but to, to really directly answer your question, when it went from um, network to local programming, um, the focus was on the disc jockey and the personality, and each personality had his unique music mix. So depending on who you listen to on a radio station. You might hear rock and roll with Jay Michael, but the person who mm-hmm. preceded him might might be playing show tunes and standards. Yeah. And and uh, looking at that, thinking about it, if Wemo would have stayed with country today, they may not have had to sell. <laughs> <laughs> Which, which, what's happening? To, what's happening to the frequency right now? And I know a religious organization has bought it, but it's just a sin what they've done with it because it was a a, a vital part 
to the Pittsburgh area, not only Pittsburgh, but Allegheny County in western Pennsylvania. And it's, it's a shame that, um, that it had to go away that, like it did. But, but you're mentioning the, uh, the, the, I guess you want to call it block programming, where basically it was the jock that decided what music they were playing at yep. the time? Yeah, okay. that, because was, that, was the, that was the standard in the 1950s. And when I worked at WMBS in the 1980s and early 90s, we were doing the same thing because they were still programming it like it was programmed 40 years ago. And that's what I thought was really interesting because whenever I went to the first station where I was playing music, which ended up being WJPA in Washington, I had a format to follow. And I'm going, wait a minute, I'm not used to this. Not that I'm not used to the music, but I'm not used to having to follow songs in certain orders. It was whatever I was in the mood to play whenever I wanted to play it. And, that, yeah, and a lot of people just don't understand that. Yeah, in the uh, in the uh, in, in in the fifties, um, a couple things happened which made radio stations um, homogenize their programming. Um, the first was that they found that stations who were consistent um, in all shows tended to do better in the ratings than those who had the block programming. The other consideration was toward the end of the 50s, there was this payola uh, uh, situation where um, a number of disc jockeys were accused or some were, some were even convicted of taking money to play records so that um, a lot of station management took the decision-making on choosing the records away from the disc jockeys and put them in the hands of a program director, which centralized that responsibility. And the feeling was that rather than have five or six or more disc jockeys making individual decisions, it would be easier to hold a single program director accountable for those. So that's that's what happened in, in, in radio, and most of that was reflected in Pittsburgh stations. But as you say, um, you know, there, are, there, there were exceptions to that, not only at WMBS, but, you know, disc jockeys like Porky Chedwick always picked his, his own records, and there are disc jockeys today on suburban radio stations in Pittsburgh that totally choose their own music. Yeah, and uh, you, you mentioned the payola scandal. Were there any jocks in Pittsburgh that were implicated in that? Because I know Alan Freed was the big one that everybody uh, keeps talking about, but since Pittsburgh was so prominent in, the, in, in radio at the time, was there anybody in Pittsburgh that had their finger pointed at saying, hey, these guys were getting uh, money for playing certain records? No, not 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 to, not to my knowledge. I mean, it was one of those investigations that tended to uh, um, tended to focus on 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 Freed and a couple other high-profile um, uh, people in New York and in, in Philadelphia. Um, Dick Clark was another one who was investigated and uh, exonerated, actually. Because it, 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 unfortunately, it, it put a black eye on the radio industry at the time. But it seems that with the changes that were made, um, it was pretty much forgotten. And and now, not to say that I don't want to say that payola still happens, but there's other ways around it to get certain songs promoted 
um, on the air now, not as predominant today as it was 10 or 15 years ago because the Internet's out there to, to put this stuff on. But, um, again, you could probably say that about any decade or any era, that there were certain influences, I guess, to say that were, were, were making uh, music more popular than others. Um, a while back, um, another friend of the program, Fabian, Fabian Forte, who now lives in the area, we were talking about his early days in Philadelphia, and I asked him if he thought, um, when I talked to him last, if he thought that uh, the way music was promoted then, if, it would, if you could still promote it the same way today. And he basically said, again, like we're saying, it was just a totally different time. And you can't really compare the two with each other because, like Bobby Vinton, as you say, Clark Race broke him. He was introduced to the country that way because basically Bobby Vinton carried the 45 and said, will you play this for me? And that's not heard of today. Right. Yeah. In Bobby's case, of course, he uh, he had women bring uh, dozens of roses to disc jockeys yeah. <laughs> to get attention for yeah. the for for the for the record. Now, I I I would not consider that any kind of payola or, or you know a dozen <laughs> roses. I mean, I would. I, that's just a that's just a promotional situation. Right. But um, um, that kind of thing tends not to happen. Tends not to happen today. And, uh, you know, probably because of the conventional wisdom is it's not as influential as it, as, as it might be. But remember, back then, in the 50s and 60s and even into the 70s, many of these disc jockeys were every bit the star that any of the artists they oh, yeah. played were. You know, Porky Chedwick was as big of a star as any of the artists he played on his show. The same thing with Clark Race, the same thing with Chuck yeah. Brink. I mean, we could go down down the list. And and that that's very true. And even even to, to, in today's standard with the, with the audience that grew up listening to Porky, Porky is still considered a influence in music because he was doing programs in the area up until the last couple of years. And when Porky was on, he had the audience that would follow him from station to station to station when he left WAMO. I mean, um, it's, it's just amazing that these guys were, they were celebrities. They were big stars um, compared to the, the radio disc jockeys we have today that basically press a button, have a CD go, or they click a mouse and have the music on the computer play. But back then, personality drove what was on the air. And if it wasn't for these guys... Where where would it have been? Would it just have been background music, or would it have been the uh, industry that it turned into? Well, certainly their enthusiasm had a great uh, great effect. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I I grew up listening to Porky Chedwick and and continue to be a big fan of his, and fortunate enough to to be able to become his friend over the years. Um, but his enthusiasm for the, for the music he played, I mean, he would pick, pick the music and he would play songs that he was generally, uh, genuinely uh, enthusiastic about. And that came, came across to, to his, his audience. And these would have been songs that would have been obscure and, 
otherwise mm-hmm. uh, perhaps not recognized. And that's why a lot of the artists credit him with um, you know, helping to break their careers because they may not have been priorities at their record label in, labels. In fact, the, the record that Porky played might have well been a couple years old and long forgotten. But if he believed in it and believed his audience would like it, he presented it, you know, and and many of those records caught on, and uh, you know, artists like, uh, um, you know, especially the rhythm and blues artists like uh, Smokey Robinson and Bo Diddley and the Coasters, all credit mm-hmm. him with uh, with with helping their careers. And and thinking about that, another one like that too was Mad Mike because they were playing obscure oldies that created basically what they call now Pittsburgh oldies, which may have not made it anywhere else in the country, but in this region, they were number one. Mm -hmm. Um, One great example of that uh, in in the the story uh, in, in in, in the book, Pittsburgh's Golden Age of Radio, talks about Hanky Panky and the original disc jockey who who played that was Bob Lavorio, but Mad Mike picked up on it and started to play it at, at, at a lot of the record hops, and a lot of these uh, these these songs became uh, the, very popular because they were played at record hops every weekend as, as well. But Tommy James is another artist who owes his career to uh, Pittsburgh Radio. Yeah. Because, again, they, they reintroduced them to the world or they were just under the surface and they were introduced. Um, really interesting thing because it's hard to believe it's almost time to wrap everything up. We've been <laughs> I could go for at least another two hours. I have a lot of questions for you. But uh, I'm looking through this and some of the names that pop out, and most people, if they're not of this generation, they are familiar with these names and other, other um, avenues like Bob Trove who worked with uh, – it was Palin and Trove who was actually with Cordic originally and then uh, went with that. When they started putting morning teams together in Pittsburgh, what was the philosophy of, of doing it? Because I know talking with Jack, everybody forgets that time frame between Cordic and company and Bogut, and that was when Pound and Trow were on the air, and that was, what, two, three years? And for some right. reason, either it wasn't memorable or Jack just was that powerful of a presence that – it erased history a little bit. Mm. Well, you know, Cordic was such a powerful, um, powerful um, morning person. And when he left, uh, there was a big hole, obviously, a big void at KDKA that needed to be uh, filled. And uh, they retained Tro and they put Palin in there and certainly tried to make that happen. And when it didn't happen to the degree that they thought it would, um, they found Jack Bogan and brought him in. But another morning team that is, is probably um, more memorable is O'Brien and Gary from WTAE, two individual air talent that were working separately. But when um, program, uh, when Ted Atkins, who was the general manager of the station, came in, he, he and Mark Roberts uh, the program director saw the uh, saw those guys and their abilities, and for some reason had the intuition that they would be magic if they were 
put together, and they in, they indeed were. And I get the rivalry that was created between Bogut and O'Brien and Gary uh, <laughs> was quite interesting because I grew up listening to to both stations. And uh, when Jack moved over and basically bumped O'Brien and Gary out of their time slot off the AM side and moved O'Brien and Gary to the FM, it was like, oh, my goodness, what happened to us? What are we going to do? And I think O'Brien and Gary, if they haven't, they need to thank Jack for introducing them to a whole new audience on FM radio at the time. Well, again, I don't think anybody at the time had the crystal ball that FM was going to take off in that time period like yeah. like it did. And so, uh, you know, at the time, the AM station was where the bulk of the audience was, and they were going to a lower-rated radio station. But that wouldn't last for, that last for long. And that's because the, the audience followed O'Brien and Gary. There are people buying FM radios just so they could hear them. <laughs> well, because you know, at that it, time, it, they didn't have FM radios. And, and, that, and, and it was programming that drove that FM technology, whether it was O'Brien and Gary moving to the FM or whether it was people like uh, uh, Brother Love and Frank the Freak at Whammo FM and the original <laughs> staff of DVE like uh, Dwight Douglas and, J- and Jesse and playing songs that you, you know, that people wanted to hear but couldn't hear on AM Top 40 radio. Yeah, yeah. And again, it, it, it was a reinvention of something. And one thing that Clark Ingram says to me um, every time we talk, especially in today's standard, if it worked on AM now, it'll work on FM later. And I don't know if that's, that's a, a, a nugget of wisdom or not, or it's just happenstance that it's happened. But uh, it seems to be that if it's worked on AM, eventually it will work on FM. Well, you know, the, the, most, the most recent example of that is talk radio, which uh, yes. was, was an AM-only uh, staple for a long time. And now, um, from market to market, uh, it is starting to shift to the FM dial and working quite well. Yes, and it, it's amazing. Oh, heck, let's go back to, to uh, the early days of talk, especially in Pittsburgh with Ed and Wendy, when you never heard the caller. <laughs> All you heard was <laughs> that was. I remember listening to Ed and Wendy when I was a kid. I was at my grandmother's, but um, listening to those programs and and where have talk radios progressed from that to Signa at Night to Roy Fox to Doug Hurth to Perry Marshall to Bob Logue um, to to what has happened. It was a natural progression, and yes, I think that. If you could get some of these guys in this type, that it, I mean, now FMML talk radio has become so political and so confrontational. It's not the talk radio it was 20 years ago. And that, to me, that's sad because everybody seems to be, when they get on the air, they want to yell at everybody. And um, to me, that's not entertainment, but for somebody, it's making them money. Great example of that is, is, uh, Rush Limbaugh, who had his uh, early days of radio in the Pittsburgh area. Well, it's 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 funny. That's what the listeners have grown to expect from from talk radio. In 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 fact, on um, uh, Saturday night, I was a guest of, on KDKA on Dimitri's show, and it was being broadcast. Dimitri's Diary, yeah. 
it was being um, broadcast live from the home show. And we went into break, and we were discussing this book. And we, we went into break, and somebody walked up during, during the break that hadn't been in the audience and said, what are you guys arguing about tonight? And Dimitri <laughs> says, well, we're talking about Pittsburgh's golden age of radio. And he said, now, which of you is for it and which of you is against it? <laughs> and we just looked at each other. I mean, to, 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 to some listeners, that's what talk radio is about because yeah. that's all that they know. Yeah, and and, and that's what I say when I when I – shifted from um, terrestrial AM radio and started doing online, um, what was nice was I could actually do the program I did years ago because I don't have to argue with anybody. I'm in control of when I do it, how I do it, and who I want to talk to, which is great. But um, we, we, we've seen a shift in that, and we've seen the change, and I don't know if it's for better or for worse, but there's people listening to it. And I think um, no matter what's there, as long as someone's paying the bills – that type of programming will be there no matter what it is. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, your book, where can we buy it? Um, it can be ordered from any major bookstore. Uh, it has, it's a major publisher, Arcadia Publishing, so it has great distribution. And it could also be ordered uh, from Amazon.com. But uh, it, it's, it's pretty readily available, and it's in the Pittsburgh area. It's in stock at places like Borders, Joe Beth Booksellers, uh, uh, Barnes & Noble, and even some record stores in Pittsburgh. The Attic Record Store is carrying it. D&J Records in Carnegie is likewise carrying the book. So it, it's pretty much available anywhere, and um, if, if you're not near a bookstore – you're able to get online at Amazon, and uh, that's great. Ed, I appreciate it. I wish we had more time. Um, if you write another one, let me know because I'd love to talk to you again because I can guarantee as soon as I end this phone call, I'm going to have more questions, and it's going to be like, why didn't I ask him this? Well, it's great talking to you, Bill. I'm glad, I'm glad you enjoyed the book uh, enough to have me on, and uh, pass the word about Pittsburgh's golden age of radio on to your listeners. Well, I, I appreciate you taking time out of, out of, the, out of your Wednesday night, uh, your St. Patrick's Day, and uh, being able to share a little bit of your history and the history of Pittsburgh radio, the golden age of radio in Pittsburgh. And I appreciate it. Um, hopefully we'll have the opportunity to talk again in the future. You have a great night, and thanks again. Thanks for having me online. Have a great night. Bye-bye. Ed Sullivan, Pittsburgh's Golden Age of Radio. Boy, that was fun. I, <laughs> I hope you enjoyed it as much as me. I can guarantee, and I'm telling all of you this right now, I can guarantee that I'm going to have questions for him that I forgot to ask. And I even wrote questions down. If you're watching the live stream at uh, italkradio.us, you can see me. I was writing things down. But anyhow, we're going to step away for a brief moment, pay a bill or two, and come back to the final thoughts and commentary on a Wednesday night, St. Patrick's Day, 2010. Yours truly, Bill Alexander, and you're online with Bill Alexander, the video show. Stick around for more online with Bill Alexander. Phil Giannetti Motors, providing quality vehicles for 40 years. 
If you're looking for a quality pre-owned vehicle, give Chip Giannetti a call at 724-785-6800 or visit them online at www.billgiannettimotors.com. Call Bill at 724-444-7444, extension 1832. Or email him at bill at onlinewithbillalexander.com. Well, that's going to wrap up the program for this Wednesday night. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it as much as I have. I will put a link to Ed's book at amazon.com on the website at uh, onlinewithbillalexander.com and also on the blog. So if you're uh, interested in the book and uh, more information about the book, you can find it. And I will also um, have a couple links to... Uh, various renditions of this program tonight because I think there's a lot of information here that if you're interested in the golden age of radio, this was very informative tonight. Ned, I thank you again very much for taking your time. If you've been a renter, you know it's stressful to find the perfect place. But Zillow Rentals make it easy. They have filters for pretty much everything. So you can find a rental that's big enough for entertaining your friends, but small enough they won't crash all weekend. Find your sweet spot on ZillowRentals.com. If you've been a renter, you know it's stressful to find the perfect place. But Zillow Rentals make it easy. They have filters for pretty much everything. So you can find a rental that's big enough for entertaining your friends, but small enough they won't crash all weekend. Find your sweet spot on ZillowRentals.com. If you're into designer furniture and you want the sofa that broke the internet, you don't have to go broke to get it. Because Designer Looks Furniture has all the same styles and trends and all the quality, but without the designer prices. Check them out. Designer Looks at Value City Furniture or designerlooks.com. Many of us, if we're being honest, have given up hope on good sleep. But why? Well, if you're like me, you've tried everything and nothing has helped. So if we're not going to sleep well anyway, why try? That kind of thinking is so 2021. It's time to rethink our nights and days and demand more from our sleep. Talk with your doctor about how you can seize the night and day and visit seizethenightandday.com to learn more.